all of his expressions of grace toward us, not because of us, but in spite of us. And so I'm very thankful and grateful for uh, this invitation, uh, First Baptist Church of Gibsonville, and very humble pastor who I've not um, uh, known through a lot of personal relationships, but uh, kind of connected by the way of uh, Facebook. And I followed a lot of different things that he's written and, uh, on his Facebook, and uh, they say out of the abundance uh, of the heart, the mouth speaks. And uh, so there's been some good things coming uh, from his mouth, which is the expression of what's on his heart. And uh, we humbly say that we thank God for him and for this church. Uh, I'm very excited about uh, this uh, fall renewal, uh, fall renewal services, and uh, I'm just in love with the, with the theme, the gospel changes everything. I believe that. Matter of fact, I said uh, uh, right before I uh, read the scripture or either, uh, either at the conclusion of this uh, conference that uh, I probably would make statements such as, uh, uh, my name is Keelan Atkinson and I agree with these messages. <laughs> yeah. I think that should be the sentiment of the people of God when it comes to the word of God. Amen. Now, uh, lest I prolong uh, uh, time or hour, uh, if you have your Bibles, if you will open your Bible to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, that's that little book that's sandwiched in between 2 Thessalonians and Colossians. Make it to Second Thessalonians. You went to four Colossians, not four enough. And before uh, we uh, approach this passage, uh, do me a favor. The Bible says, "Give honor to whom honor is due." Do me a favor, and let's just give uh, God a hand of praise. Uh, for Brother Thomas, I mean, uh, didn't he do a wonderful job with the Word of God? Yeah. Amen. Uh, I don't know if uh, how you guys do it here, but can we just give God a hand of praise? <laughs> praise God. We ain't clapping for him. It's for the Lord. <laughs> Amen. But God used him mightily. Thank you, brother, for your faithfulness to God's Word. First um, Thessalonians, um, I have the responsibility here at dealing how the gospel changes worship. And uh, so if you would go First Thessalonians chapter 1, and I'm going to begin our reading at verse 2. Uh, I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. That's Paul's uh, favorite version. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so if you have your Bibles, uh, you read along silently, and I'm going to read aloud, okay? Starting at verse 2 of chapter 1. 
We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfast steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved of God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Archaea. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Archaea, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. God our Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for life, for love, and for liberty, for whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Lord, we come before your presence now, realizing in and of ourselves we can do nothing, but we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And so, Lord, I ask, Lord, where we are ignorant, Lord, I ask that you teach us. Lord, where we are wrong, I ask that you correct us. And then, Lord, where we are right, I ask that you confirm us. Do it all for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so we're here at these fall renewal services uh, this weekend. And what I believe we have been declaring is that the gospel of Jesus Christ has a profound effect upon that which it purposes to change. Whatever it is that God has purposed for the gospel to change, that thing changes. So, all of life, every aspect of life rests upon the reception of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And John Calvin, he wrote a preface uh, to Robert Pierre's, uh, Robert, uh, to Pierre Robert uh, Oliver Towns, uh, French translation of the New Testament. And listen at what it says. Matter of fact, Justin Taylor, uh, he put some line breaks in so that you can read it actually easier. But listen what he wrote. Without the gospel, everything is useless and vain. Without the gospel, we are not Christians. Without the gospel, all riches is poverty. All wisdom is folly before God. Strength is weakness, all justice of man is under the condemnation of God. But 
by the knowledge of the gospel, we are all made children of God, brothers of Jesus, fellow townsmen with the saints, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, heirs of God with Jesus Christ, by whom the poor are made rich, the weak strong, fools wise, sinners justified, the desolate comforted, the doubting sure, slaves free. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all of those who believe. Therefore, I conclude that the gospel changes everything. And so what we want to do is, uh, we've heard from the scripture, I, I believe, in these two days, that how the gospel changes hearts. And we've heard how the gospel changes mission and how the gospel changes relationships. So my responsibility is how does the gospel change our worship? Mm -hmm. Well, it's my prayer that we would leave here this weekend. This is my prayer in summation of everything that has taken place in these two days. That we would leave here with a, new, a newly found love and appreciation for the gospel. And all that it means to us. So, here in our, the, the text here that I have uh, uh, selected here, um, it, it it's pushes me to ask a very important question to all of us. Alright? And here's the question. You don't have to answer out loud, but certainly... It's a question you need to answer. Have you personally, and we can even say corporately, as a local congregation, as a body of believers, have you received the gospel in word only, or has it come to you with power and conviction? That is a very critical question that we all must answer. Because it's possible for the gospel uh, to, for us to hear the gospel and never be changed by it. Mm. To actually be able to articulate the truths of, of what it says what is the good? What is the gospel? And we can articulate and give meaning and not actually be changed by that gospel. Mm. So please understand my question. I ask that question because I know in my um, limited relationship pastor of church and listening to his post I even went to the website and listened to some of his sermons and I have to conclude that I know from what I've heard of this preacher that the gospel has come to you First Baptist of Gibsonville in words what do I mean I have clearly and faithfully heard uh, uh, Pastor 
Upchurch as well as Pastor Thomas articulate the gospel uh, here in our presence. So there is an objective attendance of the Holy Spirit with the preacher when he faithfully handles the content of scripture. But Paul's concern seems to be uh, is the subjective attendance of the Holy Spirit with the listener. Mm. We have to, we live in a day and time now where it's so critical and important to define. Because much of what we say we agree upon in declaration, we differ in definition. So you live in a day and time where it's very critical and important in order to have a mutual understanding of whatever you're talking about to define what you're talking about. I never forget it. Just recently, I was in a, uh, I was in a men's store. I uh, uh, in there looking at a shirt or a tie or something. There was a guy in there, and uh, and he just seemed like to be a really humble and, and nice guy. And you know, I mean, and uh, so I just asked him. I said, man, do uh, do you know the Lord? And he says, yes. And I said, well, praise God. I say, uh, you know, uh, so you know Jesus Christ? He said, yes, I do. I said, wow, man, I, it just it just really showed, you know what I mean? And, uh, and so we went on talking, and and uh, so I said, uh, yeah, man, so you're a Christian, huh? And he said, yeah, I'm Jehovah Witness. And I'm like, uh, now we both declared Jesus Christ in declaration but in definition we have two completely different meanings of who Jesus is that's why I say we live in a day and time where it's important that you must now define and share with people what you mean when you use various terms. So, how does the gospel change worship? Well, first we need to define what is worship. What is worship? Very simple definition. Worship is honor paid to a superior being. Honor paid to a superior being. That's worship. A very simple word to define. It means to give homage, honor, reverence, respect, adoration, praise, glory to a superior being. Frankly, the word in the scripture, it's used indiscriminately. All of the uses of worship in the Bible is not talking about the worship of the true and living God. There is mentioning in the Bible of Baal being worshipped, of false gods being worshipped, idols being worshipped. So, so the word is used indiscriminately. It's used of people who gave uh, this very kind of homage that I just described to idols. It's used of people who worshipped material things. So the word in itself is not, not a holy word. The common New Testament word uh, 
for the word worship, it literally means to kiss toward. It came from the ancient custom of kissing the hand of a superior. A person bowed down on the ground, bowed his head and kissed the hand. Now, based on this definition of worship, all of humanity worships something or someone. There's nobody who is in a, even, even the atheist, based on this definition, is guilty of worship. But the question becomes not if we worship, who or what do we worship? And that is very critical for but we have to begin by realizing man's real condition of slavery and bondage in Adam. Uh, let me put it like this. Um, every human being, every person ever born, has a real condition of slavery and bondage, and it's all based on our uh, Adam being the head representative of all humanity and his fall. So when Adam fell, we all fell. And somebody says, well, hold on, that's not right. It's not fair for me to be graded based on what Adam did. Well, Adam's a pretty smart fellow. I mean, he names all of the animals. I mean, he's a pretty smart guy. And if you don't want Adam taking the test for you, then take it for yourself. But the point I'm making is because of Adam's fall, all of us was affected by sin in a tremendous way. Matter of fact, Romans 5, 12, 19. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and, and, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, all of humanity. So that by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous, Jesus Christ. So the bottom line, there we have the gospel. The point I'm making is all are either in Adam or you're in Christ. In reality, there's only two races. The saved and the unsaved. So the question what is our real condition in Adam? We must, we, 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 we must answer that. What is our real condition in Four things that I think uh, give an answer to this question. Number one, we are all by nature slaves to sin. Adam was God's freeborn son. 
and seeking independence from God by the deception of Satan, he fell into the bondage of a new master, which caused all of us to become slaves of sin. Well, not only are we by nature slaves of sin, we are by nature slaves of the world. The word here means a, a system of people and things that are in opposition uh, to the will of God. Everywhere you see that word world when it's talking about the system, that it, it's talking about that which is in contradiction to the will of God. And so we're all by nature under power of sin and the power of the world, that is, we are slaves to it. Thirdly, we are by nature slaves of the devil. Genesis 3 recalls the, the fall of man. When, when Adam fell as the head representative, all of us fell. Matter of fact, Genesis 3.15 is the first recorded proclamation of the gospel, and God declares that through Christ the alliance will be broke. But we were by nature slaves of the devil. Now, it's very interesting to look at this last one. We were by nature slaves of the idol of self. Um, I know most of you are probably a little different from, from me, and uh, but the reality is, you know, uh, I, I like me. <laughs> I think I'm a pretty nice guy. But as I have been exposed to the gospel, as the gospel of God's free and sovereign grace has invaded my heart and my mind, I have come to understand that one of my biggest problems is me. Yeah. Somebody said, I would never worship myself. Sure you won't. That's why you keep taking your instructions. Adam turned from God to self. And before you get real hard on Adam and start booing Adam, uh, you might want to read Isaiah 53, 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all turned, everyone, to his own way. Notice, turn from God to a substitute God. A turn from God to the idol of self. But here's good news, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 16, for the love of God controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who uh, live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for their sake. Wow. One of the actual purposes 
of Jesus Christ dying was so that we would no longer live unto ourselves. Jesus died for us to stop being selfish so that we can enjoy the type of relationship that our brother just shared with us from the scripture. And one of the biggest hindrances, again, of relationship and all that God is, 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 is selfishness. Notice that it was to liberate us from blank. Put your name in there. The purpose of Christ dying was to liberate me from me. So this helps us to see our condition in Adam, in, in, in slavery and bondage, and it helps us to know that we have been freed and helps us to even understand what we have been freed from. Therefore, the gospel, uh, when it comes to its power, receiving it in power and full assurance, it actually changes the person because it changes the object of our worship. Man by nature is a worshiper of sin, Satan, the world, and himself. And why we should be so excited and so on fire about the gospel because the gospel comes and liberates us and breaks the chain from that terrible bondage. God should be praised for the gospel, brothers and sisters. Well, back to our text. A few things that I see there that I want to share with you. And I'll go to my seat because I've really learned how to get up, speak up, and then shut up. <laughs> After Paul, look at the text. After Paul using his usual greeting to the church, and he makes this pronouncement of blessing upon them by the way of grace and peace. He expresses his gratitude to God for the saints and the sincerity of his gratitude is authenticated by his constant and consistent prayer for them. No matter how much you talk about what you are grateful for, one of the greatest ways to bring authenticity to that which you say you are grateful for is measure and ask yourself, how much do you pray to God about that? Now, watch this. He has this constant and consistent prayer. And he has this constant remembrance of their work of faith, of uh, their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfast or their enduring hope in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 4. In verse 4, Paul says something that blows my mind. Paul says that he has an absolute and certain knowledge about these people. He says that he knows that they are the elect. He says he knows that they are the chosen of God. What a statement. I mean, I know the Bible 
said that he saw into the third heaven and there were some things that were unlawful for him to speak. I mean, did God give him a sneak preview into the Lamb's book of life? How does he know that these people are God's... I mean, was he at the first election? You know, it's kind of interesting with this being election season. And, you know, uh, matter of fact, God was telling me the other day, uh, Atkinson, man, it's important that we get the people out to the polls and vote. This is the most important election in the human, uh, uh, in the, uh, this is the most important election to ever take place in all of humanity. I start scratching my head. I said, well, uh, he said, like, what's, what's wrong, Hank? So I said, man, well, I, I don't think I agree with that. He said, this is a critical election, man. This is going to determine which way. I said, nah, brother, I think the most important election that ever took place uh, in, in, you know, in all of humanity uh, or concerning humanity uh, was when uh, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Yeah. I'm more concerned about God's election than I am about man's election. Because the truth is, if God did not choose some, then that means heaven would have none. That's right. That's right. But Paul makes this statement and says that he knows without a shadow of a doubt that these people are the elect. How can he say that? How can Paul say that he knows that they are the elect? How can he speak with such absolute certainty? Well, I'm glad that the Bible doesn't leave us to speculate about this matter. Because he tells us in verse 5. In verse 5, he says, Because our gospel came to you not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and full conviction. Well, 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 hold on, hold on. I have another question. That's what I like about expository preaching and preaching of the Bible. You know, um, uh, good preaching, uh, you know, uh, it ought to make sense. Yeah. All right? And, and all we do is just, we just ask the intelligent questions that the Bible gives us answers to. I tell people good preaching is like Jeopardy. <laughs> you know, you have the answers, you just make up a question <laughs> for the answer that you already have. And watch, he says, but, 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 but here's my next question. Paul says that he knows that they are the elected God. How does he know that? Okay, it says because the gospel came to them uh, not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Well, the next question is, I have another question. How do we know that they received the gospel in power and, uh, and in the Holy Spirit with full assurance? How does he know that? How do we know that? Ah, I got you stopped, I'm a preacher. No, we've got some more verses, verse 6 and 7. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 starts off saying, and you what? Became. 
Paul says the reason he knows that the gospel came to them in power is that they became. So just stop right there. We don't have to deal with what they became. They became. So it says that the gospel in itself intrinsically has the power to bring about change. Because whatever they were before they heard the gospel, they wasn't that after they heard the gospel. Because it said they became two times. Matter of fact, in verse 7. And we asked ourselves, well, what did they become? Number one, they became, first of all, they became imitators of Silas, of, of Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Now, what do you mean, imitators? What was Paul, Silas, and Timothy doing? These guys were going around preaching the gospel. And when these people heard the gospel, guess what they started doing? They became imitators of the ones who was preaching the gospel. But not only did they become imitators, the Bible says they also became examples. What do you mean examples? They became examples of the gospel. Because the gospel is not something that must only be declared with our lips, and we heard it so wonderfully, just share it with us, but it also has to be manifested in our life. And oftentimes, we get it a little backwards. I know probably not you here, but I know in my church, we, we have a tendency to get it backwards. And, and the way we get it backwards is because we love to talk about the gospel with our lips. And the reality is that's backwards because really the gospel first must be lived with the life because uh, you can actually preach a better sermon with your life than you can with your lips. Because, watch this, if you look at it all through scripture, God has commanded his people to live in such a way that makes them look completely different from everybody else. And then what happens is the others who see you living this way, they start asking you questions. Well, hey, what's up with you? You know? I mean, wow, something different about you. You know, I saw that guy just cuss you out. You know I mean? You didn't even respond. You know? Matter of fact, I heard you praying for the guy who cussed you out. So what happens? As we impact people with our lives, they start asking us questions. What's so different about you? And then that becomes your opportunity to speak with your lips. Because they've already seen something that they've never seen before, which is really God. And as they see that, they get opportunity to ask you, second, uh, I believe it's First Peter, Second Peter, uh, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. But before we even get to giving the answer, uh, the verse right before that says, uh, when uh, Christ is reigning over your heart. See, he's reigning over your heart and you're living in such a way that now people want to hear something from, from your lips. So really your life becomes a setup for your lips. Mm. And that's what happened here. These people, they heard the gospel and the gospel came to them with power uh, transforming power to the point that it impacted them to the point that they became not only proclaimers of the gospel, but they also became people who lived 
by the very gospel that had changed them. Well, what happens when the gospel comes in power? What, what, what happens? That's a good question. That's a good question of this text. What happens? Now, as you read this passage, and I'm wrapping up now, um, as you read this passage, it's so awesome. It's so awesome because uh, what happens is uh, Paul says that the gospel impacted these people lives in such a way that when they went around and talked to other people in the town, when they were going to give their report, people start giving them reports on the people. And the report that came back to Paul said that when they got through telling us about what they saw in you, guess what? We had need to say nothing. But Notice what was reported on them. Because here's the question I ask. What happens when the gospel comes in power? Three things. Three things. I'll share them with you. Again, I promise I'll go to my seat. You, you can tell I'm Baptist. I keep saying I'm, I'm going to go to my seat. Right. First of all, it produces a radical regeneration. When the gospel comes in power, it produces a radical regeneration. Somebody said, now where did you get that from? I got that out your Bible. It's in there. And if it ain't in your Bible, then that means you tore it out. <laughs> but look what it says in verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you Turn to God. Turn to God. Pros theon. Turn to God. Now that's, that's a radical regeneration. Because every mentioning in the scripture of man before the gospel is descriptions things like he's dead in trespasses of sin. And I don't know, you know, how you define dead, but I think dead means dead. <laughs> and the only thing that I believe that a dead, there's, well, there's two things that a dead man can do. You know, because a lot of people always, well, ask Jesus to come to your heart and, you know, tell him that, you know, I mean, well, I mean, if you're dead, don't seem like you would be, you know, carrying on those type of activities, you know. <laughs> but there are two things that a dead man can do. Stay dead and stink. <laughs> he can do that. He has the ability to stay dead and stink. So his only hope is that somebody outside of him yeah. will come and bring about a resurrection. Yeah. And the text says that these people, when Paul came proclaiming the gospel, you got you to gotta get it. In Macedonia and Archaea, this was a land full of pagan worship. All the worship that went, it was pagan worship, idolatry, all of those things that I told you about our real condition and Adam was being manifested in these people. But the gospel came and it came with power and with impact to the point that it not only changed their hearts inwardly, conversion and regeneration, that word turned there, here is uh, one of the strongest words that's used in the Greek New Testament for regeneration. <laughs> All right, so it, 
they, they, they actually were regenerated. They were made alive. And it's kind of interesting, you know, we have some, you know, you keep telling people, uh, you know, ask the Lord to, you know, to come in your heart and, you know, keep telling them, you know, you got to make a decision, you know. And so what they do is they get belief before regeneration. We believe regeneration has to take place that will lead to belief. Because again, a dead man can't do anything. But this is a radical regeneration because notice, it said they turned to God. Now, that statement is saying something tremendous to us saints. If, I mean, again, preaching ought to make sense. If God is over here and they turned to God, all right? If they turned to God, that means originally they were not facing God. It means that they had their backs to God. It means that they were facing something else. And the reality is we only worship that which we face. We worship what we can see. We worship what we perceive, we understand. But the good news is that the gospel had the power to turn them from their idols and turn them to, according to the text, the true and the living God. That's why we have reason to rejoice about this renewal, the renewal service. Because see, you can't, re you know, if you're going to have a renewal service, you're, you know, you can't renew what's not been nude. <laughs> okay, you know, yeah. re means again. And so what we're doing is revisiting truth that we already know. And that's why I teach at our church, you know, if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. Because there's nothing new up under the sun. And all we want to hear is the good news of the gospel. We want to hear about what, what our Lord has done. Don't give me your stories about I want to hear about the greatness of the gospel. And the gospel, when it comes to you in power, it'll produce a radical. And I use the word radical because I'm saying at the very core, at the root of a thing. It'll produce radical regeneration. Because the text said that they turn to God from idols. Now watch this. When I say, when it says they turn to God, now it actually says they turned. That's what the text says. So you are responsible to turn to God. But the problem is there's no ability in us to turn to God. And that's where the gospel, it is the power of salvation. It is the power for deliverance. Because we were ensnared and we were in slavery to sin, Satan, death, and self. But the gospel with power comes and boom and knocks the doors of the prisons open that we can come out and now worship the true and living God. So if you are Facing the true and living God today, it's nothing to pat yourself on the back about. 
There's nothing to feel good about you. It's, it's, it's all the reason to give God the praise. It produces radical regeneration. But notice, there's not just the positive effect of the gospel, there's also the negative. Turn to God from idols. Alright? Notice, it's not turning to God and idols. Notice, one of them is eradicated. One of them, you now see them for what they are. So there's a negative, a positive and a negative effect of the gospel. I always say, you know, I, 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 um, best way I can explain it, I'm afraid of a gospel that releases me but can't restrain me. Well, you didn't get that. I want a gospel that not only releases me, but also restrains me. Because as saved as I am, I still got some problems. When I would do good, I, you know, so there's still, there's still some, some, some problems with me. But the good news is that the gospel, not only does it uh, release me from the bondage of sin, it also restrains me from any continuance in sin. And I'm not talking about perfection, I'm talking direction. You know, because you'll have people that'll say, well, well, you can't judge my life. No, I'm not judging your life, but I do know apples from oranges. I'm a fruit inspector. <laughs> you know? And so we're not talking about perfection, but we're talking about an increase. Is, 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 is there an increased desire to live for God? It produces a radical uh, regeneration. And let me say this too, because this is a major, uh, man, this is an area that we're struggling so bad with in the life of the church. So many people, they want to trust Christ for justification. But then when it comes to sanctification, now it's up to you. No. The way you go forward, watch this, the way you go forward in sanctification is by going deeper in your understanding and appreciation of justification. So many of us, when we find ourselves struggling with sin and the idols that still uh, are made up in our hearts, because you know our hearts is an idol factory. And every time you kill one, another one reproduces. And that's why you have to daily be mortifying the idols within your own heart. But, but, but the thing is, you don't go forward by doing better. You don't go forward by focusing on your behavior. You go forward by focusing on God's benevolence. By remembering how gracious, how loving, and how good he has been. I mean, most people make God out now like he's some type of schizophrenic. Like God's on Prozac. <laughs> you know, when you do good, he loves you. Then when you do bad, he's mad at you. So God is mad, he's love you, he's mad, he's, you know. That's not the God of the Bible. The scripture says, while you were yet sinners... Christ died. Guess what? When he started loving you, you were messed up. <laughs> so there was never any basis for his loving you that rested in you and your performance. 
So the way that you get better is not by trying to do better. You, you, you go forward by remembering the cross, going deeper in your understanding of how much God loves you and how much God has given himself for you. So every day, you know, I mean, literally, as believers, we got to preach the gospel to it. That's why I was so excited about this subject, that it changes everything. Because the reality, we got to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Every time you're tempted to sin, to move away from God, guess what you need? The gospel. You need the gospel. You need to, to be reminded that you can't save yourself. And that my acceptance and approval is not found in my behavior, but it's found in the beloved. Yeah. Man, man, this is liberating stuff if you get it. So it produces radical regeneration. Secondly, when what happens when the gospel comes in power? It produces a committed consecration. Somebody said, now where would you get that at? That's right there in the text. Notice. Turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Notice, to serve. And that word serve there, it's an interesting word that Paul uses. He uses the word doulos. Very interesting. He doesn't use the word latrio here. And I, and I really struggled with that. I said, but it seemed like once I turned, then it's about worship. And the reality is, watch this. It is about worship. The words can almost be used interchangeable. But Paul uses this word because he wants you to have some understanding of the mentality. Remember, you were up under the, the master of sin, Satan, the devil, and yourself. They were your masters. They told you what to do. You were in bondage. You were in slavery. So what is he saying now? He uses this word doulos because he wants you to understand that now you have a new master. And that real worship is about getting the right master. And he uses the word doulos, which is really a, a bond servant, which means that you have become a willing slave. Yes. And the Bible teaches us that God would, uh, by, by the gospel, that he would make us willing. Yeah. I've had friends tell me, yeah, I guess it's, that's a problem I have with your theology, man, you know what? Uh, you know, I mean, uh, you know, we have a free will, yeah, and God doesn't violate the Man, that's your only hope that he violates your will. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you better pray that he messes up, that he violates your will. That's right. Yeah. That's why we pray, thy will be done. That's right. So it produces a committed consecration. When the gospel has come to you in power, guess what? Won't nobody have to ask you to participate That's right. in the things of God. That's no. Because guess what? You, you, you now have become so committed. I, 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 I know you don't have any like that here. But, you know, people, you know, well, I'm not going to make you no promises. You know, I, you know, I ain't going to lie. One thing, one thing I believe is being honest. 
I ain't gonna make no commitment. I mean, I mean, you want to be honest about not making a commitment to God, not being committed to the things of God. We need to go back and check your regeneration. Because when the gospel comes in power, not will it, it will not produce regen a radical regeneration without you also having a committed consecration. Man, when, when, when the gospel, how many of us here can wave our hands to the truth that when the gospel impacted our hearts, man, we came up saying, man, what would you have me do, Lord? We weren't trying to bag up. We weren't, we weren't saying anything. We felt so privileged. See, coming to salvation, coming to the knowledge, being turned to the true and living God, being able to worship Him is coming to the place where you just say, whatever you want me to do, Lord. What is it? Here's a good question to ask yourself. Measure your growth. What is it in the church is beneath you doing? What is it around here that's beneath you? And if you can find anything that's beneath you, then you're too high. It produces a radical regeneration, a committed consecration. I know we got to go home. It's almost lunchtime. Uh, it produces a focused expectation. When the gospel comes to you in power, what you used to be focused on, you're no longer focused on. It messes up your messes up your vision. Because your eyes used to be focused on sin, Satan, the world, and self. But now what do they call that surgery now? They got a surgery out, you know, where you can go and get your eyes fixed to 2020 or something. What are they? LASIK. Yeah, LASIK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a LASIK, a spiritual LASIK surgery that God does on the believer through the gospel. And it takes your eyes off of what they used to be on and puts them where they need to be. You know, Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll what? Give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. And I was struggling with that passage. I said, Lord, I've been delighting myself in you, and I'm not getting the stuff I want. <laughs> he said, read the passage again. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires. I'm delighting myself in you. I'm not getting what I want. And then, and then as I slowed down and short, listened to the Spirit of God and let him explain it to me, he says, listen here. It's not that I'm going to give you what you want. I'm going to give you what to want. Yeah. That's a major difference. We don't even know what to want. But the good news is that the gospel fixes our focus. It helps us to see what really matters and where our eyes really need to be. Because where, where, are, you, where are you getting this focus expectation? It's right there in the text. Look at it in verse 10. And this is an addition I'm talking about what the gospel does when it comes in power. It turns you to the true and living God. turns you away from idols. It causes you to serve the true and living God. And watch this. And to wait 
for his son from heaven. Yes. Our eyes are no longer fixed on earthly things. Mm. We are now waiting and got our eyes fixed, waiting on the coming of the Lord. One of my mentors, a uh, guy by the name of Elder G.J. Ward, he said to me, he said, Keelan, you know, uh, don't know how much longer I'm going to be here. He said, but I thank God for the gospel. I said, what do you mean, Elder? He says, well, because, see, the closer to heaven I get, the less of earth I realize I need. Mm-hmm. See, God, through the gospel, fixes our eyes. But notice where the eyes are fixed. The, fi- the eyes are not fixed specifically on a place, they are fixed on the person. Look what the text says. Yeah. And wait for his son. And wait for his son from heaven. Mm-hmm. Whom, watch this, he raised from the dead. Now, why did God have to raise him from the dead? He had to be raised from the dead because he had been crucified. Yeah. Crucifixion and resurrection speaks about a performance. The Son speaks about a person. The Gospel is all about a person and a performance. The Gospel, when we are truly worshiping God, everything will be fixed upon the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the person and the work of Jesus Christ is the center. It is the the whole circumference of what worship is all about. Oh, how thankful we should be, brothers and sisters. I don't know about you. Man, I'm excited about what the gospel has done that causes me now to be able to worship. And notice how I worship. Jesus had a wonderful conversation with a woman down by a well. And Jesus makes it clear to her, if you're going to really have authentic worship, then that worship, you're going to need two important elements. There's two important elements. There must be spirit, and there must be truth. There must be spirit, and there must be truth. Uh, I'll put it in a simple way. There must be some information. Information about what? The person and the work of Jesus Christ. And then there must be some inspiration whereby you rejoice in the person and the work. So there's inspiration and there is information. And if you get inspiration without information, it'll lead to frustration. (laughs) Or perspiration. (laughs) But when you have truth and the Spirit of God, Those are the needed elements to be able to worship God. So what am I saying? Man, these these two days should should conclude not with us worrying about who didn't come, but praising God that he came. That he came right to where we were with our backs turned against him. Worshiping our ugly idols. But by his free and loving grace turned us around. Mm. Showed us the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. 
that he is satisfied with the work of Christ in order to bring about reconciliation. I'll never forget, I, I close with this. I have a nephew. He used to come to our home uh, during the summer. And when he would come, he used to do the same thing, pastor of church, and he used to irritate me. He, he had a video time was using VHS. He had this video, and he would go and get in my room and put that video in. And the video was, a, was, was his high school football game. And at the high school football game, uh, their team was losing by five points in the fourth quarter with two seconds left in the game. And they was on their own two-yard line. And he was the running back. And they gave him the ball. And he ran all the way back. They tried, they almost had him on one sideline. Man, he made some moves and cut back and ran and scored the touchdown. And it got to the end and they were celebrating. And then he would stop and he rewinded again. <laughs> and he, you know, he rewinded again. I said, you know, and, and he watched it. And, and right after they scored the touchdown, he said, yeah. Then he, after the score time, he rewinded back. He kept watching over and over and over and over again. Then he said, yeah! I said, this boy is crazy. He's watching the same thing over and over again. And I asked him, why do you keep watching this over and over again? And he says, Unc, you just don't know what this victory means to me. And I'll never forget it. The next Sunday, we went to church, and I was preaching. And I got through preaching. When I got through preaching, we were all in the car. We were heading out to go get some dinner. And he says, uh, uh, let me say something to you. He said, you know, I kind of like your preaching. You know, you got good personality, and I can ex understand the stuff that you're talking about. You know, you're pretty articulate and all that. He said, but one thing that kind of bothers me. He said, every time you preach, I don't care what you're preaching on, you're always going to say, he died. Then you're going to say something about they buried him. Then you always get to three days later that uh, he rose again. And so, you know, I got to thinking and it hit me. I said, uh-huh, I got him now. I said, boy, you just don't understand what this victory means to me. And so we've been called here this week for renewal services just to be reminded of what this victory